Mission Unpacked, where we discuss the pull of the past every week. I'm your host, Allison Treat. I'm an author of historical fiction and a freelance editor. Welcome to my show. Hey guys, this is episode 12 of Historical Fiction Unpacked. Today I'm talking to Amy Lynn Green. Amy and I met a few years ago at the Art of Writing Conference and the Christie Awards in Nashville. Amy was there because she works in the marketing department of Bethany House Publishers, but now she's released her debut novel. It's called Things We Didn't Say. It's a World War II epistolary novel told entirely in letters and other documents. So Amy and I had a fantastic chat about why she chose to write this novel completely in letters, um, and also some of the other things that come into play in this novel, because while it is a World War II novel, it is set on the home front in the Midwest. My conversation with Amy was so much fun, and I know you're going to love it. So listen in. Amy Lynn Green, welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Your debut novel, Things We Didn't Say, is releasing November 3rd. Can you tell us about this book? Yeah, sure. So Things We Didn't Say follows the brilliant, uh, but a little bit blunt, Johanna Berglund as she has to return back to her small Midwest hometown to be a translator at the German prisoner of war camp. Um, Nobody wants the camp to be there. She faces a lot of difficulties with understanding both the German men who are there and um, the town that has a lot of backstory and uh, secrets um, with her. It's also an epistolary novel. So it's written entirely in letters and other documents, which was really fun. Yeah, I started reading the book um, and I want to read the rest because it's so interesting. Um, Where did you get the idea for this novel? So actually, I... Since I live in Minnesota, I kind of wanted to see what was going on during World War II here um, in Minnesota on the home front. And the two most interesting things I found. So one of them was the prisoner of war camps that were here. Like a lot of them were all over the country. People didn't know about them. Like you probably have some in Pennsylvania where you live, Allison. Really? (laughs) I mean... The closer you get to the East Coast, the fewer they were because they didn't want anyone to have any chance to be near the capital and things like that. But Texas had a ton. Indiana, where I'm from originally, had some. So the Midwest was a key spot. Okay, I'll have to look into that. Yeah. And then the second thing was I learned that Minnesota had a secret language school for Japanese translators, Um, a lot of Japanese Americans, some who just knew the Japanese language. um, And they moved them from California because during World War II, everyone was prejudiced against Japanese people and were moving the Japanese American citizens even to internment camps. But Minnesota said, hey, like... If you don't want them on the West Coast, we're happy to have the translators here and help them learn how to be um, spies and negotiators and um, writers of propaganda that could be sent over to the Pacific front of the war. And so that was right here in Minnesota, actually a few miles from where my house is. Wow. That seems like such a different approach to the fear that, you know, I've read a lot about the fear of the Japanese Americans and how they put them in camps. Um, but this seems like a completely different approach. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really hard for a lot of the men who decided to um, join the army and be a part of this language school um, because they had to decide, like, 
their a lot of their families were in the internment camps and yet they still chose to like join the army and serve america even when america wasn't serving them so reading about their their conflict and their struggle was one of my favorite parts of writing this book yeah so how did you learn about these things and decide that it would make a good novel Yeah. Well, I first saw the Japanese language information at um, the Minnesota Historical Society. Um, They have various different sites and displays that go up. And at uh, Fort Snelling in St. Paul, they had one um, about the Military Intelligence Services Language School, which is what it was called. Um, Mm -hmm. And they had pictures. They had pictures of all of these Japanese Americans, most of whom were from California and Hawaii playing in the snow for the first time in Minnesota. Um, and also some of the work that they did, which obviously during the war, people didn't know about because it was all very top secret, but afterward they could talk about. Um, and from there, the rest of the research was just, um, I was able to go visit. There's a prisoner of war museum in Algona, Iowa. Um, Mm -hmm that documents some of the German prisoners of war that were uh, serving in the United States at the time. And uh, Jerry Yoder, who works there, uh, gave me a tour and gave me a whole flash drive of research about all of the camps in Minnesota, like their menus and their daily routines and all of the court documents when anyone ever tried to escape and things like that. It was a research gold mine. Wow, that's great. So when did the idea of the story kind of form in your mind? It's hard to say. Um, I'm not as much of an outliner. So I do the things as they come to me. I knew I wanted to write about a civilian translator at the camp. Um, Mm. And from there, I kind of just took the idea of what was the history and also what could I do to make things as difficult as possible for this particular person. So (laughs) lots of fun with that for sure. So it really formed around the character more Mm -hmm. than the plot, I guess, for you. Started with that, I started with the very first letter in the book talks about the fact that uh, Johanna has been accused of treason and is undergoing a trial for that. And as I wrote that, I had no idea how she was going to have that happen to her. But in the rest of the story, I figured it out. That's cool. So you mentioned the the fact that it's an epistolary novel. And I had another author on the show. It was in episode five, Brian Davis. He had also written an epistolary novel. Um, so what made you sure that that was the right format for this book? What what intrigued you about writing it that way? Oh, great question. I read the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which is oh. another epistolary novel. Yeah, I love it. You read one. it? Yes, I love it. Yeah. I really liked how every character got to have their own say um, and not just the main one or two point of view characters. And Mm -hmm. I just thought, oh, I really want to do a story that can be told that way. And when I was looking at this one, one of the main aspects of the story is that um, Joe, as the translator, censors the prisoner's mail. Um, She sends a lot of mail to her friends who are elsewhere. And so it seemed like if I was going to do an epistolary novel, this would be the good one to do. But I just, I love writing letters. I love reading letters. Um, I'm trying to keep the post office alive single-handedly. There's just something (laughs) about that storytelling format that was really appealing to me. I loved that... um, it's not just Joe that you get to hear from. You get to hear from her friend Peter, um, and you get to hear from the quirky matriarch of the town and the barber. And even if they only write one letter each, um, 
there's still something fun about all of those elements that I wouldn't have been able to do in a, in a normal um, storytelling format. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I was thinking that it would be more challenging. So I'm sure it is more challenging in some ways um, to have to get everything across with letters rather than just having a narrator say what's going on. Um, but then I'm sure there are those benefits that you're able to put in different views that would be difficult to work in to a different mm-hmm. format. Um, so did yeah. you run into any difficulties with with what you couldn't say? Did you have trouble fitting everything into letters? I think some people find that the challenge of writing an epistolary novel. Um, there was one time um, because all of the letters are things that Joe would have access to. And so the motivation of one of the antagonists in the story is something that she wouldn't know because along the line, there are lots of lies told and deception. Um, So it was really hard for me to figure out how to let the reader in on the motivation behind what happened in a way that would also make sense for it to be written down. Um, So some court transcripts and things like that is how I kind of got around that. But um, that I think was the only part where I was like, ah, really, how do I do this? The rest of the time, obviously there are some things that I couldn't do. Like um, there weren't a lot of direct scenes you could show, but there's a lot of emotion you can get through the way that people tell stories in letters. Um, So that was the, the the villain motivation was the one that I struggled the most with. The rest of it was a lot easier than I expected it to be. Cool. Yeah. The, um, you definitely did a good job showing the emotion with even the way Johanna would cross out th- certain things and change what she was saying. <laughs> that was great. Those were my favorite to write for sure. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned some of the research you did. Um, can you share any more about your research process? Yeah. I read books and books of letters, um, obviously, mm. to prepare for this. Some of them were from soldiers who were fighting over in World War II because there were um, there were some elements of that in the story as well, uh, without giving too much away. But yeah. um, also, I got a book of letters from prisoners of war. Um, the, I read some of Americans who were prisoners of war elsewhere in the world, and some from Germans or Italians or um, occasionally Japanese who were um, prisoners of war in America or other allied camps. Um, that was really helpful to get a sense of the way that people talked and the yeah. things that were important to them. Um, also, people wrote way longer letters than they do today. Like, obviously, in uh, epistolary format, everybody's going to have a lot to say because otherwise there would be no book. But right. the actual real letters, I was surprised at sometimes the depth and detail that people went into in them and just really enjoyed getting to read their voices. There are some people that had a fantastic sense of humor um, that carried over really well in written form. So I really tried to learn from those sorts of things. That was my favorite way to do research was the primary sources of letters. And so many have been kept by family members and published, which is wonderful, like really great for authors, but really good for just preserving family stories as well. Yeah, that's awesome. I I think that we've lost the art of letter writing. I'm glad you're trying to keep it alive. I hope you're not really single-handed single-handedly doing that, but um, <laughs> people must be answering your letters, right? People yeah, <laughs> for sure. So. And I found that sometimes young kids are the most excited to get a letter and write back. Oh, um, yeah. 
I get lots of fun stickers and letters that I send to the kids in my life. So would highly recommend taking time to write some younger person in your life if you're listening to this. Yeah, that's a great idea. So you mentioned several times the POW camps. Can you tell us more about that? Because while I knew, I mean, I knew about the camps where they um, were keeping German Americans, Japanese Americans. I, I don't think I knew very much about the POW camps during World War II. Yeah, neither did I when I started writing, so you're not alone. (laughs) It's one of those more obscure facts, Um, but the basic idea was that if Germans were captured, um, especially, there were more of them than others, but some Italians and a few Japanese um, Mm -hmm. enemy soldiers, England couldn't take them. They were have small country. They were under a lot of food rationing as it was, um, didn't have a ton of space. And a lot of areas over on the European front were enemy territory or almost enemy territory. So Mm. America and Canada um, said, well, you know, if we need a place to keep prisoners of war, let's keep them over here, um, far away from a place where they could just escape over enemy lines. Um, And any, like I said before, any place that was safe, um, that wasn't on either of the coasts um, or near any major military project was a place where they kept prisoners of war and not just kept them, but uh, used them as labor on farms or canning factories. Uh, basically, under the Geneva Convention, you could have prisoners work for um, a relatively low pay at work that wasn't war-related. So you couldn't send them to a munitions plant to make um, weapons against their own country. That was Mm -hmm. the rule. But, you know, doing logging work in the Minnesota Northwoods, completely fine. Um, (sighs) And they were allowed to choose to not work and just stay around the camps if they wanted to, um, but they would get a small salary that they could use for little luxuries. And a lot of them kind of wanted to be Um, working and doing something. A lot of them came from farming backgrounds and um, it was something familiar with them. So there were all sorts of fun things about all of the camps. Like a lot of camps started their own newspaper or their own orchestra. Um, They performed plays. Mm. Uh, They took classes sometimes in English, um, which happens in my book as well. Um, They did correspondence courses with various colleges. Um, There was a lot of hard work, but there was a lot of um, time for them to use uh, their time in captivity constructively as well. Um, And people's reactions were a little mixed to having a prisoner of war camp near their town. Sometimes they... Um, there, there were a lot of places where there were German American communities nearby and they were pretty open almost to the point where occasionally prisoners of war would crawl underneath the fence and go have dinner with families nearby (laughs) and then sneak back in later. Um, and that became a problem. (laughs) Yeah. But there were some places where people like where I read lots of angry letters to the editor of why are these people here? We know that the Germans aren't treating our prisoners of war this nicely. Mm -hmm. Like, why do we have to uphold the Geneva Convention if they're not going to? Um, So I have Mm -hmm. a little bit of both of those represented in the book. Yeah. So interesting. You mentioned the the military intelligence schools, that Japanese language program. Can you tell us more about that? I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but 
oh, these guys were just my favorite. Um, in the course of doing research for this book, I really admire um, the choices that they made and the work that they did. So essentially, uh, the government early on realized that it would be really good to use, especially Japanese Americans who were fluent in Japanese. Many of them had spent some of their childhood or youth in Japan. Um, they were unwilling to consider first generation um, Japanese Americans. You had to be born in America. You couldn't have come from Japan as a Japanese citizen and become even a naturalized American citizen um, because there was just a level of trust the government didn't have for Japanese Americans at this time. Um, there was even a reluctance to get this school started at all, um, even though eventually they were persuaded that it would be worth it. So even mm -hmm. under a lot of suspicion, um, these young men, and most of them were young, um, in between the ages of 18 and 30, um, came to the school to be trained because even though they might speak Japanese well enough um, from having spent a few years in high school over in Japan, there's a big difference between that and being able to translate, for example, the forgotten diary of that a Japanese soldier dropped on a battlefield to try to parse it for plans. Um, there were different styles of right. writing that were used for that. Uh, there was military language. They, um, so these students studied for a very intensive short period of time, um, several months to a year, um, depending on where their skill level was at. And they just poured over the books and their instructors drilled them in all of the military language. They drilled them in interrogation techniques. Um, mm. They drilled them in how to write good propaganda so it would sound like it's using the local slang of the area and things like that so that the leaflets could be dropped behind enemy lines. Um, and eventually the students would take a test um, and if they passed, they were able to be embedded with a military unit and go over to the Pacific Theater and use their skills in all kinds of different ways, um, whether that was doing a hostage negotiation, um, whether it was doing radio broadcasts into enemy territory, using their um, knowledge of the Japanese language. Um, and some even went undercover and were spies. So the amount of things that they did, they won so many Purple Hearts and decorations um, for their service. Um, and it was really hard. They faced a lot of prejudice. Um, there was even some internal prejudice between the Hawaiian students and the Californian students because they were uh -huh. culturally hugely different, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. That there was that even within their ranks. Um, learning about them was fascinating. Learning about all the things they did. I tried to work in a few real stories. Um, mm. But just really inspiring and just a real question of what do you do when your country doesn't trust you, but when your country needs you at the same time? Yeah, it's just amazing to think about that um, and being in that position. Yeah. Um, so have you always been interested in history and historical fiction? Is that like your, your first love or what first got you interested in history in general? Sure. I mean, history in general, I had some fantastic history teachers in high school who loved what they taught. And oh, I feel great. like all of us, I mean, do you have, Allison, do you have a teacher that you can point to to say, this is when I started really enjoying what history was? Yeah. I mean, I would have to say my mother because I was homeschooled. Mm -hmm. So I think that she really loved history also and um, still does. But she encouraged my love of history too and, and historical fiction also. So um, 
yeah, it, I would have to say in college, I didn't luck out with history professors. So it's wonderful that you had teachers who loved history because I think, um, I think there are a few. My, my kids, my daughter who's 14, I think her history teacher is amazing. Oh. But um, I think that's hard to find. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if history is taught poorly, it can be the most boring thing on the universe. Yes. Yeah. Just memorizing dates and battles and uh, things that, while important, may not be the most engaging. <laughs> right. When there are so many things to learn from history. Yes. And it, it is so exciting. Mm-hmm. Yes, it definitely is. And I, I can, I'm really glad that your daughter has a teacher who um, is making history relevant and exciting in her life because I think that's one thing that contributed to my love of history. And yeah. I would say I read all genres. Um, I have a great love for epic fantasy and literary fiction and, and even mm. certain kinds of nonfiction like memoirs. Um, mm-hmm. But historical is one that I, the re- I love because of the ability to look at our current issues and where we are but from a different lens. So yeah, exploring, like people don't change. Uh, and so characters from historical fiction are going to be wrestling with a lot of the same things we are, but in a very different way that kind of gets our guard down. Um, we can think about the world and our reactions um, and current events even, but um, through the lens of a different time period and um, different specific issues, but the same issues underneath them. So that's super fun for me. I'm a nerd. I love all of this stuff. Well, me too. (laughs) Good, good. I'm glad. (laughs) We're going to come back to that idea of looking at current events through the lens of history. Mm -hmm. But I did want to ask you, you wear another hat within the publishing world. Can you tell us about your role at Bethany House? Yeah, sure. So uh, this is how I got started in publishing in general, is that right out of college, I started working at Bethany House Publishers. I work in the marketing department, so I'm the fiction publicist, which essentially is a fancy word for anything that isn't paid advertising that's connecting books to readers. So setting up reviews, um, interviews, book tours, um, doing our social media all sorts of things underneath that umbrella. So I went and, with- and setting up authors to talk to somebody on their podcast. Right? Exactly. <laughs> that is 100% one of the things I do. So that's how I got connected with you, Allison. Yeah. Although we had, we realized we had met a couple years ago at, um, in Nashville mm-hmm. at the art of writing conference. So, mm-hmm. yep. And those, I, I look forward to the day when we are able to go back to those in-person events again. Oh, yes. So, so, so do I. So you've always been in publishing. Have you always wanted to be a writer? I Yeah, that's one of the reasons that I was actually hired for this position because I had experience writing. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of it was more nonfiction. So articles, um, devotionals, blogs, that sort of thing. But it was relevant to my work because I, I write our BethanyFiction.com blog every week. I write press releases all the time. Um, so the ability to write was definitely everybody at Bethany House knew that I did some writing and that maybe in the future I would do a fiction project. Um, So I wasn't exactly a secret writer, uh, but when the manuscript went around Bethany House, it did not go around under my name so that people wouldn't know it was me and be biased either for or against it because of that. Right. Can you tell us that story? I've I've heard it on your Instagram, but I'd like to hear it again. (laughs) Yeah, sure. 
it was it was just a really fun process um, because obviously in a normal publishing experience, um, usually you'll meet with an editor at a conference or um, talk to a literary agent and submit um, a proposal to have them consider you. Um, and then the literary agent will talk to the editor. Um, there are right. multiple different ways that people get published, but those are two of the more common ones. Right. Obviously, it's different with me because my coworkers are the editors and they eat lunch with me and stuff. Um, (laughs) So I talked to one of our editors, um, Dave Horton, and said, hey, I have this idea for an epistolary novel. I don't see this done a ton in faith-based fiction, and I would love to give it a try. And he looked at some sample chapters and the plot outline and said, "Um, this is my favorite kind of book, actually, and I would really love to see the rest of this um, when you finish that. So I did, finished it, sent it to him. He really liked it. So did another editor um, who he showed it to. And so they asked me to create this fake book proposal that had all true information about the book, a bio that was mostly true, but just like leaving out important things like my real name. (laughs) Um, And then went through the normal process where they send that proposal to various people on the editorial sales and marketing team. Um, and then they met at a meeting called Pub Board to discuss different contracts. And usually I'm at that meeting. I was mysteriously absent from that yeah, meeting that day. Weird. <laughs> yeah. Just at one point, my boss said like, Oh, where's Amy? And said like, Oh, she had another meeting at the same time, which I did, but I scheduled it for that right. time on purpose, <laughs> <laughs> on purpose. and um, yeah other funny things about before that meeting is that the copywriter at Bethany House a friend of mine Rachel stopped by my office and said like hey have you had a chance to read that World War II book that we got a proposal for because the narrator's sense of humor really reminds me of you <sighs> and I was like yeah like oh, I'll have to make time to read that haven't quite gotten around to it yet um and she also said like it's also weird like i've been searching for this person on social media and can't find her anywhere like she said she can do all of this marketing stuff and the marketing plan looked great but is it weird like should i bring up the fact that i can't find her i was like oh yeah definitely bring that up to the team and talk about that (laughs) maybe she's using a pen name who knows (laughs) right So she stormed back to my office after the meeting when it was revealed that I was really the author and we had a good laugh. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) It's like you were incognito, Mm -hmm. um, almost like a spy, but you got to reveal it. So that's cool. That's true. A lot of spies don't get that satisfaction. So this is my kind of spy life. Yeah, that's great. So um, is this common among Bethany employees? I mean, do you have a lot of them? write books or I mean it's happened once or twice before um Julie Claussen was an editor at Bethany House um it was a little bit more secret with her people didn't know she was writing until that point um Mm -hmm. she was the latest example of someone else but this isn't like there are a lot of Bethany House employees who have no designs to write a book Um, right so not everybody there is secretly going to submit something to the fiction (laughs) (laughs) right okay so what are you writing now can you tell us about it? Sure, I can tell you about it. It doesn't have an official title or cover yet, so I'm just going to call it Mysterious Book 2. Okay. Um, 
it's not book two in the sense that it's a sequel. It's just the second book that I'm writing. Okay. Um, so I'm working on revisions right now, but the basic story is a little bit more of a mystery. Um, it follows the group of conscientious objectors who decided instead of fighting in a war against their conscience, they would uh, become smoke jumpers and parachute into wildfires in the Pacific Northwest um, because all a lot of the smoke jumpers joined the army instead and so that they didn't have anyone to protect mm. from forest fires during the war. Um, there's a mysterious and tragic accident and um, the main characters wonder if perhaps it was not an accident. Um, so the process of investigating and learning more. So again, totally different setting, same time period, but a lot of different issues. Um, yeah. also super fun to write. Good. It seems like you like that, um, that time period and like the home front during World War II is mm -hmm. kind of your jam right now. Yeah. I don't know if I'll stay there forever, but I just haven't read quite as much about the U.S. home front. Um, and so it feels like there's a gap there of fun stories that can be told. And yeah. I want to read it, so I figure I might as well write it. Right. That's great. You write the book you want to read. So, mm -hmm. Are you thinking you'll stick with historical fiction or in the future, I mean, future books? Or do you have thoughts about other genres as well. I know you said you enjoy reading other genres. Do you think mm -hmm. you'll write others? You know, I'll never say never to something. I think there are a lot of historical stories that I'd be interested in writing. Um, yeah. So I don't necessarily, if I, if I did something different, it would probably be something very different, like fantasy for school-aged kids or something like that, where it would be easy to do something completely different. I don't think I would want to do contemporary um, or suspense or anything along those lines. Um, I think it would mostly be either historical or something totally, totally different. Mm -hmm. um, is it hard managing like your full-time job in the publishing world and then also your creative work of writing novels? Is it hard to fit, to fit the writing in or how do you feel about that? Or do you ever just feel like you want to do something completely unrelated to books? And <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think I've gotten that feeling every now and then, um, especially in the past few months of doing rewrites around planning the launch of my first book and also doing a full-time job. But a lot of authors do it. Like there, I yeah. have talked to many of them who had tips for time management. Um, have I figured out how to implement all of those? Not necessarily. Um, <laughs> I don't have necessarily a regular time that I do writing. Um, but for the most part, like I really love books. And so working with them for my day job and working on writing one in my off hours um, is not a bad thing. Right. Right now, just got married a few months ago. We don't have kids at this point. So, um, yeah, congratulations on your <laughs> oh, wedding, your pandemic wedding. It's yep. It's, it's a strange time, but lots of fun things in the midst of it. Right. That's good. It's good to have something to celebrate. Yes, always. So what are you hoping readers will get out of your books? I... That is always such a hard question for me to answer because I feel like as a reader, I get different things out of every book that I don't know if the author would even have planned. Um, <laughs> but some things that people have said that they got out of it that I thought, oh, that's great. I'm really excited about that is um, a lot of people have said it was it raised a lot of good discussion questions about things like prejudice and who's my neighbor and how should I treat my neighbor, um, yeah. which is super relevant to the world right now, right? Oh, totally. Um, 
book releases on election day. And there's nothing, I think what people liked is that there's nothing explicitly political in the book and definitely nothing that is a direct parallel to our political situation right now, but just ways of thinking, like how do we, how do we live out, especially for, for people of faith, how do we live out what we believe in a world where there are these divisive questions? Um, How do we love other people? Well, um, but also just people who have said, like, I didn't think I would like this book written entirely in letters because that's just not my thing. And that's a little weird. And actually, by the time I got into it a few chapters, I really enjoyed it. I think those are my favorite comments because I know there are some people who, you know, epistolary is just not going to be their thing. But if there's somebody who gave it a try and found out they really enjoyed it, that just makes my day. Yeah, that's great. So you touched on this earlier. I want to see if you have more to say about this, because this is kind of the focus of my podcast. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Wow, so many things. Um, I guess I could talk about what what I personally learned in the writing of this that applies to how I live my life. That would be perfect. Great. Like I said, with the Japanese language schools, one thing that I kind of wrestled with in writing this is the hard choices. So obviously, World War II feels like a really obvious war, and good versus evil, everything is clear, um, lines are drawn. But for a lot of people, there were more complex issues of what should I do as a Japanese American when my country has imprisoned my family and also needs me to help save democracy? Um, do I have a loyalty to my country that goes beyond um, what what feels fair um, at the time? Yeah. And just like, and even other issues of prejudice at the time, like with African-Americans who were serving um, there, the, the, the book touches a little bit on that because um, prisoners of war at various camps in the Midwest would say, and especially in the South, would say things like, why are we allowed to go into town and go into a movie theater? And there's a sign that says that black patrons have to go upstairs and sit in the balcony. And they would ask their captors that and be like, you're America. You're supposed to be this land of freedom. That's mm. what you talk about all the time, that we Nazis are all prejudiced and you're not. Wow. And yet, so that tension, and I think that the tension of racial injustice is still with us today. So what do we do? How do we live um, in light of that? And like I said, I think the main thing for me in reading this is um, people have always struggled with the question of who is my neighbor and how do I treat my neighbor? And I think especially when that neighbor is not, is a part of a group that you don't necessarily want and you don't relate to, that can be the hardest time to answer that question. And um, obviously during World War II, German soldiers (laughs) would be at the top of that list of people who you do not relate to at all. And you don't feel like you have any obligation to treat um, with any kind of decency. And yet people did. Um, And seeing the humanity and compassion of people who learned um, the German soldier who worked at their field was actually a person like them um, and maybe had been exposed to propaganda, maybe had to enlist because they were drafted. um, And just seeing other people's humanity. um, And how does that apply to our life today? Like who, for me, is part of a group that I would say these people 
are really difficult to love. Um, and mm. how do I do that well? Um, especially as somebody whose faith is really important to her, like how do I represent God well in my love for other people? Yeah. Those were, those were huge issues in writing of this. I mean, obviously there are lots of fun little things as far as how does history relate to life as like, do we have an appreciation for things like writing letters anymore, um, connecting mm-hmm. with people in a way that we can't do just by sending them a text or seeing them on social media. I think that was a fun one for me um, on a lighter note is uh, lots of ways to engage with people in a sort of old fashioned way, like getting something in the mail, like baking something by hand um, that we maybe don't value as much anymore. But when you do them in today's world, it stands out so much more and people are really appreciative of those things. Yeah. That's so interesting. I wonder how much better we would connect even during say when everyone, when everything was locked down and, and people couldn't see each other very much. Um, And I know some areas of the country are still, under that restraint. I just wonder if we would have connected better by writing letters instead of, say, scheduling a Zoom call or, you know, the things that we did. Yeah, there were actually a few articles I read about that, that um, some people did mail experiments during the early stages of the pandemic where they just, in their extra time that they had, they wrote a bunch of letters to people and some of the surprising benefits they found from doing that, even people who are, you know, millennial age generation who aren't used to doing that um, said it brought them a lot of joy and a connection that they wouldn't have felt otherwise. So that was fun to see. Yeah, that's cool. Okay. So you mentioned um, loving the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which is I have to look into whether that's the longest book title. But <laughs> it's so long. <laughs> it is, but it's such a good book. Um, but do you have a favorite historical fiction author um, or other favorite books you can tell us about? Oh, my goodness. There are so <laughs> many. I feel like that is a deeply unfair question. <laughs> um I can tell you the most recent book that I read and really enjoyed, which is The London Restoration by Rachel McMillan. That's just after World War II um, about restoring uh, bombed out cathedrals and also spies and the start of the Cold War and all sorts of fun things like that. So that was really great. Um, That's neat. But I don't necessarily have the one list of the historical fiction author who inspired me. Like I... I right. love reading broadly, even within historical, but there are so many good ones out there. So many. I know. Yes, there are. So it was wonderful talking with you, Amy. Um, how can listeners purchase your book? It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your local independent store. I would suggest going to IndieBound.com to try to see if there's an independent store in your area, because I just know a lot of them need support right now. Yes. Um, but pretty much any retailer that you want to go to online will have a copy of it. So just look for things we didn't say. And if you want to follow me on Facebook or Instagram, I'm there as well under Amy Lynn Green. And you can keep up with all of my ridiculous nonsense that I post all the time. <laughs> It's not ridiculous. It's fun. I have a lot of fun. Oh, totally. Um, Do you have a website? I do. It's amygreenbooks.com. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for talking with me, Allison. This was fun. So friends, head right out and buy that book, Things We Didn't Say by Amy Lynn Green. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this podcast, to leave a star rating and review. 
Also, if you're interested in the show notes, you can find them at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. As usual, later today, you can find me in my Instagram stories. I would love to connect with you there. My handle is simply my name, Allison Treat. I was so inspired by Amy's love of letter writing that I think I want to try to incorporate it into my life more. Um, and I found this fantastic quote about letter writing by David Nichols. I think I became a writer because I used to write letters to my friends and I used to love writing them. I loved the idea that you can put marks on a page and send it off and two days later, someone laughs somewhere else in the world. So maybe that inspires you to write a letter today, but I would encourage you to keep reading historical fiction because as authors, our books are like letters to you. Mm -hmm.